Welcome to episode 101 of the Kyperian Commentary. I'm your host, uh, Yuri Brito. When I was in the heights of ignorance, uh, somewhere in my glorious teens, a radio show emerged in my station on a snowy evening in Altoona, Pennsylvania. That show was called Renewing Your Mind with R.C. Sproul, and it dramatically shaped my theological pursuits. I wasn't fully on board, I must confess, with the fanatic Pittsburgh Steelers fan by the name of Robert Charles Sproul, but I knew that he was on to something. And my joy was made complete during my seminary days at RTS in Orlando, where we had the opportunity to attend St. Andrew's Chapel for a short season, sit under his preaching and also many of his classes on the Westminster Confession on Wednesday evenings. I had the pleasure of interacting with RC on many occasions, but the memory of watching that Titan preach from his uh, Lutheranesque pulpit is something I'll never forget. And so I have fallen in love with RC, and I had many friends who are members of St. Andrews and who are on the staff. And when I came across a new biography of Sproul, who died in 2017, it's hard to believe it's been almost five years, I had to contact the author. So it's my delight to have on this episode, Nate Pickowitz, to discuss his new book, R.C. Sproul, Defender of the Reformed Faith. Hey, welcome, Nate. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Yeah, delight to have you. Uh, first and foremost, to tell our listeners uh, uh, who you are and uh, where you pastor. Yeah, so uh, Nate Pickowitz, I pastor Harvest Bible Church in Gilmanton Ironworks, New Hampshire. No one's ever heard of that town before, and most people in New Hampshire haven't either. Uh, so it's a very small rural uh, town uh, up in the northern part of New England. Uh, just a lovely place to be. I'm married to Jessica, my wife. I have three little children. Uh, been pastoring this church for coming up on 10 years now. And uh, by God's grace, he has allowed me to write a couple of books and, and just be able to uh, delve into uh, theology and history and just really uh, blessed to be able to do that. So uh, this, is, this is one of the projects I got to work on. Well, lovely. It's a real delight to make your uh, virtual acquaintance. Here is your new book, R.C. Sproul, Defender of the Reformed Faith. And it was so delightful to read. I have typically made the policy of reading the books before I, I interview, and uh, I don't always fulfill that promise, Nate, but I did read this one here because it was such a delightful, easy read. And I sat in my beautiful Florida hammock out here and read through the whole thing in a few hours. Um, a very uh, smooth reading just like uh, scotch. So it was delightful. Nate, I want, to, I want to talk about this book here, but I want to know first and foremost about the uh, where R.C. Sproul came into your life. Yeah, so I'd say for me, I think I've been reading R.C. for about 12 years, maybe. Uh, it was one of those things where uh, I, I came into the Reformed faith, like most people, you know, you, you, you get saved, you become a Christian, and then for many people, they don't become Reformed until later on, and then it's like a second awakening, you know? <laughs> same, thing, right. same thing happened with R.C. Um, so I came into Reformed theology, and I, I sort of came into it uh, in the young, restless, and reform movement, and yeah. uh, I joke with people that now I'm in the old crotchety and Calvinist movement, <laughs> so it's a different movement altogether. <laughs> so fantastic. I came into that. And, you know, and, and by doing that, I mean, obviously, I've been into John MacArthur for, for quite a while as a Bible expositor, but, re you know, reading John Piper, uh, reading Mark Driscoll, uh, and then <laughs> jumping into uh, R.C. Sproul and being introduced to R.C. Sproul. And at first, it was just kind of like, a you know, just a, a whole bevy of teachers I was just consuming. I read The Holiness of God. I read Chosen by God. I read all those books. And then as time progressed, you know, I didn't consider R.C. to be a major influence on my life at the time. 
But as time progressed, I found myself when I was in sermon preparation or when I was preparing to teach anything, and I, and I had a theological question, I would always instinctively go to Ligonier. Uh-huh. And I don't, I don't know why I did. I just, I was just like, well, RC will know the answer, you know, and all his teachers will know the answer. So I just instinctively started doing that. And then when he passed in 2017, I really began to take stock of everything he meant to me. And as I was kind of jogging through in my mind, I realized that his books and his teaching uh, and, the, and the website and the ministry had had a profound impact on my theological formulation. And I'm thinking, boy, I've learned a lot from RC. And so my love for him at that point just began to grow more. Uh, and then when I had the blessing of writing the book and, and sitting down and actually studying his life, it, it was kind of a whole new revelation of realizing, wow, there's really, there's nobody else like RC. I and mean, he was very unique. And we probably won't have another one like RC for another couple hundred years. I mean, he was that unique, I believe. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's been a long time coming, but really in progressive waves, I think. That's 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 a lovely, lovely introduction. I, I really enjoyed uh, John MacArthur's um, uh, sort of um, his forward his, there. His forward, yeah, that was terrific. I've done a lot of work with Abraham Kuyper. I did a, a master's work with John Frame and Abraham Kuyper. There was a lot of interesting similarities, especially RC's um, tutelage under uh, J.C. Burkauer. What do you see the as what was the kind of educational background? that gave roots to the genius of R.C. Sproul. You find in these sort of theological titans, this hunger for knowledge in their early days. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, if you will? Yeah, so, I mean, R.C., you know, <laughs> like so many people, he stumbled into a lot of this without realizing that. He went to some of the most liberal schools at the time. In Pittsburgh Seminary was had experienced some, somewhat of a merger where the, the school they were merging with uh, was more liberal than the school that, that had been merged with. And there was only a few real conservative titans there. Uh, but really early on in his, in his life, uh, he was influenced by, um, by John Gerstner. Gerstner was a, a tremendous influence on him. Uh, and really he began to, um, he, he had taken an interest in Gerstner when he was an undergrad, but one, once he had the chance to study with him and just take classes with him, and he describes in many of his books about um, taking class on the exposition of Romans, uh, taking class on Edwards and learning about Luther, and really just sitting under this man who had been himself tutored and, and trained by John Orr. And so that tradition, you see that tradition coming down through a very strong um, uh, reform tradition coming in through his theological uh, acumen. And it's not that it, it's tricky because it's not as though whatever Gerstner did, R.C. just went along with. You know, I had one person ask me if he changed his his uh, apologetic um, uh, view because of Gerstner, just because Gerstner said so. It's like, well, no, I mean, R.C. thought for himself, um, but, you know, the the relationship and the two of them were just so like-minded that it was, you know, as R.C. was discovering these truths, he was really just sitting under the the capable hands of Gerstner. So Gerstner was a a tremendous influence. Going even farther back, and he read a lot of Luther, he loved Luther, Um, And really, I think, resonated more with Luther in terms of passion than he did with Calvin, even though he had Calvin's mind. So the the twins there were really important to him. And obviously, Edwards was tremendously important to him. But when you you stick Luther, Calvin, Edwards, and then Gerstner in the mix, and you get R.C. Sproul. That's wonderful. You know, on page 88 of your book, uh, Sproul describes what was the loss of Gerstner in his life. And he said... I would feel threatened to not have a stabilizing influence in my life anymore, just as a son feels when his father's taken from him. So he was truly a, a father figure, right? 
Absolutely. And, and even more so for RC because RC lost his father when he was 16. So, you know, and that had tremendous impact on him. I mean, he was very close to his father. I mean, obviously no child loses a parent and does not feel that, but, but RC, it was a formula, a formulative experience for him. And then when Gerstner comes in, it, that sort of filled a void for him, not just as a, as an earthly father, but as a spiritual father for him. Uh, and so losing Gerstner felt like re-losing a father all over again to him. It was, a, it was a very close relationship. And there's a moment that I, um, I, I highlight in the book, and it, I don't know how I found it, but I was watching old video of RC, and I stumbled onto one of RC and Gerstner, and I watched to the very end. And usually 30 seconds left in the video, you just push stop and you move on with your day. Well, there's a moment at the end of one of these videos where uh, RC thanks Gerstner for, for his time and Gerstner reaches his, his arm across and grabs him on the forearm and says, it's a pleasure to live again in you, man. And, wow. and RC just lights up, you know, <laughs> and it was almost as if he's passing off the torch. Like I get to live my life as a theologian again through you. And frankly, Gerstner's influence exploded through the ministry of RC Sproul. Uh, and so what we're really getting is we're getting Gerstner on steroids in RC, uh, but just a very sweet exchange between the two friends and, uh, and I just, I love that little experience. And so I stuck it in the book wherever I could put it. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that line. And I remember R.C. saying something like, if I lived 300 years of my life, I would never reach the wisdom and insight of John Gerstner. Yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty potent sort of way of observing another human's life. You can tell the, yeah. the influence is very heavy. Every theologian, Nate, as you know, has um, their many theological interests. What was the theological issue that made R.C. tick in your estimation after researching R.C.? Yeah, I think for R.C., I mean, he, there was a lot of different parts to R.C. in terms of what he jumped onto. But for R.C., uh, he was transfixed with the holiness of God. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a given. I think anybody who knows R.C. or reads him for any length of time knows that that's what it is. But I think for R.C., he had a childlike curiosity to really know the person of God. He really wanted to know who God really was inside and out. You know, he read Turretin extensively and really zeroed in on Turretin's exposition of uh, theology proper. And so that really was the heartbeat of R.C. But then when his clause came out, his clause came out when it came to dealing with sola scriptura, and when it came to dealing with sola fide, uh, you know, he, those twin uh, truths of the Reformation really uh, motivated R.C. I mean, one of his strongest theological battles uh, was over uh, faith alone in the 1990s, and so those became really personal to him. But I think the core, the, the, the hub of the wheel, if you will, was understanding the, the person and, uh, and the nature of God himself. I, that's what I think, at least. Well, when, when you consider some of these great theological battles that R.C. went through, there was, th these were heavy, he they were heavy, not only intellectually, but very emotionally, right? I mean, there were loss yeah. of friendships. Can you talk a little bit about that dimension? Yeah, so he, uh, it seems as though every, every major theological battle uh, that existed in every decade of his life, he was part of. I mean, it's like whenever there was a battle to fight theologically, there was R.C. Um, but I think the, the the heaviest one on his heart, which is, I think, the one that, uh, that his friends uh, don't want to talk about as often because of the personal nature of it, was probably the ECT battle, the evangelicals and Catholics together. And the reason that was so personal for those of you who know the story is that he had uh, several of his friends and, and one close friend being uh, Chuck Colson, sort of the center point. I mean, uh, J.I. Packer signed the ECT statement and sort of had his reasons for why he did so. 
But Colson was one of the architects of the statement. And so when, when R.C. found out that Chuck Colson, who he had been not just friends with, but theological and uh, ministry partners with, at one point they even thought about merging Colson's ministry and the Ligonier ministry together into one. That's how close they were. And then they decided against it for other reasons. But um, when he learned that his, his one of his good friends was behind that, not only did he not understand why, like he, he wrestled with why in the world would, would Chuck do this, but he also was, uh, was just grieved deeply. Not that he was worried that, that Chuck was not, be, was not a Christian anymore, but why, why would he, as a defender of the faith, align himself, not on a world scale, not on a, on a, co- a co-belligerent fighting against social evil scale, but why would he align with a document that says that we together are one body in Christ when we have a different gospel? That was R.C.'s issue, was, you know, we are not together for, for this gospel. This is a very different gospel issue. So I think that really struck at the heart of him the most. And, and I had the chance to just, you know, even ask a few of his friends who knew him closely and, um, and, and ask, well, what did that do to him? And I mean, it just tore him up. I mean, absolutely tore him up. And in his uh, commentary, I believe it's his commentary on... Uh, on Luke, he talks about, um, he, he, re- he lays out just his feelings, and, and, and I excerpt the entire passage in, my, in the book, but he talks about the battle in his own heart over standing for the gospel, even if it costs you friendships, and so he was willing to go to the mat for the sake of the gospel, even if it cost him uh, a, a close friendship, and it, over the course of time, it, it eventually did. Well, both of us are pastor congregations, and uh, we at times look at uh, certain theologians, and we kind of look at their sort of pugilist background. They're always, you know, picking fights and wars with everybody. My experience with Spro at St. Andrews was a very unique experience because uh, he would go around the congregation before the service, and you noted this in the book and a few other places, and he would... Uh, he would know by heart every major statistics regarding the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I am from Brazil, so I could care less about NFL. But uh, he went on and I acted as if I was interested. But he was the kind of man who fought the right battles, but had a very pastoral and tender heart, right? Yeah. I had to look up what the word pugilist meant because I wasn't sure what a a good definition of that was. But, but, you know, there's a a point uh, in one of the books that came out really toward the end before he passed that I talked to, I referred to him as a battlefield theologian. He, he called Luther and Calvin, all those guys, battlefield theologians. And, and essentially he, he kind of gets lumped into that. I think un, unwittingly low. He, he wasn't, R.C. wasn't always, he wasn't looking for a fight. He, he didn't want to fight. Um, he wanted to, to have friends and be kind. And I mean, I think, uh, I don't know this for absolutely sure, but I think if R.C. could have just been stuck in a room reading, you know, Turretin and, and translating Latin, he would have had a lot of fun, you know, but mm-hmm. But he was in the battlefront and he did care about the truth. And at a certain point, you know, when, when your status or your platform or your influence, I should say, gets to be a certain level, I mean, there's a point in which you're, you have a responsibility uh, to other people even for the sake of the truth. And so R.C. knew he had to fight these battles, even if he didn't like to. I don't think R.C. enjoyed the fight, mm-hmm. but R.C. knew that he had to fight. And he talks, there's a couple other places he talks about the uh, fear, dealing with fear. And he says, you know, fear, uh, or, you know, he talks about courage. He says, courage isn't the absence of fear. He says, courage is, is, uh, is action in the face of fear. And he goes, mm. you know, courage being doctrinally courageous is when you don't want to do it, when you don't want to lose friendships, when you don't want to be labeled as a, a nasty person, but you know, the truth is at stake. And so he would just make the decision in his mind. I have to persevere, even if I'm afraid to, 
because I know that I, I must, you know, that the glory of God is worth it to RC. So, uh, so he did, he fought every major battle that he had to, but he really tried to do so with grace and kindness. And that's a theme that I bring in, in the book where I think we as believers and pastors and whoever would do well, I think, to emulate that, to, to, to model ourselves after that, to say, look, we can fight theological battles with fierceness, but we also have to do it with godly character. And was R.C. a perfect man? No, he wasn't. But he, he worked hard and he strove to, to have uh, uh, humility and godliness and kindness even toward his adversaries. And I respect him for that. When uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned, I thought about R.C. quite a bit because of what, what a joyful time would have been for him to be here with us on earth. But of course, his joy is multiplied by a thousand in heaven. Um, let's just play a little bit of a speculative sociology here, or theology, however you want to phrase it. If R.C. were alive today, um, what would be his major concern with the evangelical church and the trajectory of the present church in America in, in the Protestant tradition? Yeah, I think that uh, things haven't really changed in the five years. If anything, they've gotten more amplified. So, I mean, R.C. was was always concerned, just based on the th everything he said, he was concerned about compromise. Uh, it's great that we win little battles, but we have to not compromise. And right now, especially with the recent social justice movement and wokeism coming in, it's a, it's a theological compromise. It's nothing more than theological liberalism. It's the same thing that was coming into the institutions 50 years ago, which just has a different name to it. R.C. would have spotted that a mile away, and he did. He wrote about it voraciously. So he would have been concerned about, about drifting and about compromise toward theological liberalism. For R.C., words mattered. I mean, he hated something called um, uh, studied ambiguity. He hated studied ambiguity, which is using seemingly doctrinal language to hide and sneak in other positions. And we're really good at that right now. We'll say the word gospel, but then they mean something else. So he would have cared about precision. And I think he also, at, at this juncture, uh, would have cared tremendously about uh, statism, growing statism. Uh, right now, I mean, we're seeing that uh, in full force, certainly when he was alive, certainly when Francis Schaeffer was here, uh, but more so now of, of people turning and giving up gospel territory uh, in the worship and idolatry of the state. Uh, and R.C. Was, was very concerned about that, and we should be too. And the fact that we don't have his voice here to talk to us about it in real time uh, is, I think, a great loss for us. But we would do well to listen to everything he's written in the past about what do we do in this theological moment, in this cultural moment, uh, to not give in and not, not give way to uh, unholy alliances, not give way to study the ambiguity and, and vague speech, and not give way to, uh, to giving, giving our heart and our, our allegiance away to the state when we actually owe it to God. I think those things would have been on his mind if I could speculate. Mm. Arsis Sproul, in my estimation, is a theologian of the sacred, one who loved the holiness of God uh, manifested in every aspect of uh, ecclesiology, theology, systematic theology. He was uh, someone who I think will have an enormous influence in not only in the Calvinistic universe, but also in theological discourse in the next 50 years. That's why I'm really grateful uh, to support, endorse, propagate, whatever needs to be done. Uh, this great book, R.C. Sproul, Defender of the Reformed Faith by Nate Pickowitz. Uh, Nate, a delight to meet you, a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that.